What's going on, Trail and Ultra Runners? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast, a podcast where we explore all areas of ultra running, including training, racing, nutrition, physiology, psychology, as well as have a little bit of fun banter along the way, all in an effort to help you become a better runner. As always, I'm your host, Coach Jason Coop, and in today's episode of the podcast, we have none other than the brilliant Dr. Stacy Sims. For the last 20 years, Stacy has been relentlessly informing the sports science community that, in fact, women are not small men and we should not treat them as such. And make no doubt about it that this has been no easy task. Her latest pursuit in this endeavor includes a new online class that is all about women's physiology that both my athletes and our coaches have taken, and they cannot say enough good things about it. Her best-selling book, Roar, has been a roadmap that women coaches and athletes alike have used to tailor exercise programming and nutrition specifically to the female physiology. Stacy is, is also a sought-out lecturer, sports scientist, as well as a kick-ass endurance athlete in her own right. She's also a personal friend of mine and over the years has enlightened me on how I need to tailor my coaching practice specifically to the needs of women. She also has helped me develop heat acclimation protocols that I use for myself and I use for my athletes. And I will wholeheartedly admit that the rice ball recipes and training essentials for ultra running were stolen directly from Stacy. I'm sorry, Stacy. You know I took them from you. Everybody loves them. Thank you very much. But in this podcast, we do a little bit of personal reflection, including some of her experiences in the sport of ultra running, as well as training and nutrition do's and don'ts for female ultra runners. And to make sure I'm just not some dude opining on how women should train, I brought on another one of the best in our coach, Stephanie Howe, to help illuminate this subject even further with her personal and professional experiences as an athlete, as well as a coach. This is a good one, folks. Let's get right into it. My conversation with Dr. Stacy Sims and Stephanie Howe, all about how women should train for ultramarathon. Thanks for uh, getting on the horn with us, Stacy. Um, ironically great. enough, I was on the phone with one of my athletes today, and uh, she said, "You know, you should have you should have Stacy Sims on your podcast." <laughs> like, it's funny that she mentioned that. I'm going to talk to her tonight in a, just a, just a, just a few hours. She's like, "Oh my gosh, that's going to be so good." Oh, it's funny. I think it's funny. Like, I came out of the gym the other day, and this guy was standing in the parking lot, and he comes up. He's like, "Are you Stacy Sims?" And I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Oh, I love what you're doing in the lifting community about telling everyone they need to lift heavy." And I was like, <laughs> "This is very random." He goes, "It's like the gym is in the middle of an industrial area. Like no one is really there." So he's like standing in the parking lot, and I'm like, "Okay, it's a bit uh, weird." That's great. So when am I gonna get a women or not small men men's cut shirt? Because I'll rock the shirt. You know I will. 
but yeah. I need a men's cut shirt because, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not, you know, I, I'm pretty outgoing and I'm comfortable with myself, but the cut yeah. doesn't quite, you know, it doesn't quite suit my male physique. It's not yeah. so flattering. No, it's not so flattering. <laughs> it's mainly me that doesn't make it flattering. So I'm hoping the cut can actually help. Well, I think that Ash and Sarah have them. They do. Yeah, I think so. Because okay. they brought Steve one when they were over here in February. Okay. Well, I'm gonna have to. So, I'm gonna have yeah, to. Yeah, ping them and say, Stacy says, give me a t-shirt. I'm gonna have. Uh, I'll, I'll, glad, I'll gladly pay for it, Stacy. You know that. <laughs> but I did. I wore it one time to the gym, mm -hmm. and um, it was good. Let's just put it that way. Oh, good. Perfect. <laughs> I love it. But Stace, if you're okay with it, I want to go back to your crew days oh, first. Okay. Sure. You cool with that? Because sure. I think that's a good introduction because a lot of people are going to be familiar with what you do. But mm -hmm. let's face it. I mean, trail and ultra running is a pretty male-dominated sport. I mean, I rail on this year after year after year that the leaders in the trail and ultra running space need to do a better job of getting women into the sport and you know i know that's nothing new to you mm -hmm. but if anything the people tuning into this podcast are going to be a reflection of the trail running community and since they're a reflection of the trail running community they're going to be predominantly men yeah, yeah. and i dropped out of trail running for that like ultra running for that reason i didn't know that yeah seriously yeah yeah because when I lived up in um, Reading, I was, um, do you remember Luann Parks? Yeah. Yeah. So I paced her for Western States 100 and she, we did a lot of running and, and stuff together. And I entered quite a few races, but then I'd be like, wait, I have my period. There's nowhere to change. And no one's ever thought about this. Or like, I can't eat this stuff because it hurts my stomach. And the men around me are just like, you got to do it. Right. So there were a lot of little things that mm -hmm. added up to me going, not my thing. Wow. See, Stacy, as long as I've known you, how long have we known each other now? 10 years? At least. Yeah, a long time. At least. A long um, time. I've never heard that story. Oh. Now you We'll come back to trail running because we're fixing that shit. Okay. Okay. I love it. It is getting better. It is getting better. Like, come, yeah. come back. We'll fix it. In Europe, it's getting worse. And the mm -hmm. stats actually tease that out. Like in Europe, their, their, their female participation rates, it's below 20%. It's really, really bad. Oh but in the U.S., we're, we're, slow, we're, slowly, we're slowly fixing it. So come back to the U.S., come back to Western States. We'll, you know, we'll okay. welcome you with open arms. <laughs> I, I do have a lot of women that um, either take the course or pay me and say, hey, I'm running 100 miles. I'm into ultra running and that kind of stuff. So there is a... a pretty significant pool of the late 40s early 50s set that is gravitated away from your traditional endurance and just jumped right into ultra yeah we're still on hockey cool. stick growth like for sure uh, yeah. like trail running yeah. and ultra running still on hockey stick stick growth right now that's good to hear i've heard a lot of good feedback on your uh on your course we've had i mean you're aware Chantel. One of our coaches took it and uh she had a lot of really good feedback for it but i also had one of my athletes uh, take oh. it as well. Who is like right in your demographic? I mean, she's like oh. she's the she's the pro, she's the prototype, and <laughs> we we probably talk about something from your class like twice a month. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. so it's been good. So let let's go back to the origin of it all. Okay, the origin, the origin of all of this. All. Women are not small men. From your perspective, take us back to the your crew days when you were an undergraduate. 
my undergraduate days at Purdue University. That's right. Uh, yeah, so uh, I went to Purdue and I didn't want to run because I'd been a cross country runner. So I was like, yeah, what do I want to do? And I met um, a friend. It's like, hey, you should try out for crew. So went, tried out, made the team, and was really excited about the fact that you could do some endurance stuff. You had running um, and weight training and stuff. So it fit a niche that I hadn't had in a while and really loved it. But then as you started getting more and more serious about it and leading up to things like Head of the Charles and some other key races, the lightweight men and the lightweight women, as we were called back then, um, were doing very similar training sessions. And we would train together, um, dry land training together, and the boat was different. But most of the time, if not all the time, the men's lightweight would peak and do really well, and the women's would just kind of fall flat. And we're like, what the hell is going on? And then at the same time, I was in uh, metabolism and ex-phys and was like doing all the experiments, wanting to learn more about myself and came up to like some endurance stuff and all my results were different from the men's. And so I'd always be like, hey, what's going on? I kept getting the same question. Well, women are anomaly. Oh, you have a, a menstrual cycle. We don't really study women. And I was like, what are you talking about? So the more I dug and tried to get the questions answered, the less there were the answers. So I really started thinking, well, maybe this is something that is the reason and rationale why the women aren't responding as well to the training as men. And that kind of set my whole mind in the whole, like, what is going on? Why don't we have these answers? Um, and then I went from undergrad and did an overtraining study from a master's degree, looking at overtraining in women and men, found differences there, um, from immune markers to mood states, responses, that kind of stuff. And yeah, just kept pushing and pushing. But then it's only like the past, I guess, four, three or four years that people are like, oh my gosh, women are not small men. But it's been a huge <laughs> like, push, right? For my entire career, I've heard nothing but, well, why do you want to study women? We don't know enough about men. Or women and men are very similar, so we don't really need to. We can just generalize. And you look, it's not just sports science and sport nutrition. It's all the way down into every biomedical research. Like they're having to redo most of the chemotherapy research because the only one that's really super effective is breast cancer. And men don't have outcomes on breast cancer chemotherapy and treatments because they weren't the original population studied. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see how everything's evolving, not just in the sport science field, even though I still get a lot of pushback, but just the vocalization of women are not small men across the board. Is, is, is the pushback now still the same as it was when you first started like shouting this women is small, not, women are not small men. Yeah. Really? Especially in, yeah. Especially in the sports science world. Like you'll have, it's a really interesting cause I'll go to conferences and there'll be women presenting and saying, well, there really are no differences. There's, the, there's no phase, menstrual cycle phase. And I was like, if you really look at the research that was done properly, there is. And if you look at the, the depth of the research on strength training, there is definitely a, a rationale for sex differences and menstrual um, cycle phase training. When you get to um, like the top end of VO2, there are too many confounding variables to tease out menstrual cycle phase training, but there are not too many confounding variables to tease out sex differences. So when you start looking at research design, which I've become an expert in evidently, <laughs> being able to toss out studies saying these are no good because you're comparing men 
versus women who are on an oral contraceptive pill. So you can't really control for that because OCs are, are experimental in their own right, or they're just doing men and women are grouped in there, or they're doing men and women on the low hormone phase, which really doesn't tell you much either. They'll have a trend for a sex difference, but there's not enough for them to say, most likely because the N isn't large enough. Um, right. I got in a re- really large uh, email debate with Brent Ruby about this because he published something. And the research design really disseminated down to two women versus eight men. And he's like, well, I'm looking at the field practicality. I'm like, well, you can't do that until you know the basic science behind it. And you need to understand what's happening within a control setting before you put it in the practical setting. And I can understand his point. But for me, putting out false information because it's practical isn't right. Yeah. yeah. Let, let, let's back up a little bit. Cause okay. I can, ar- I can already tell like between you, Steph, Steph, say hi for a little bit. Hi. Uh, Hello. Steph, Steph, <laughs> Steph, Steph I'm just on, taking it in. Yeah. Steph Howe's on the, on the horn with us as well. We're, 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 we're going to have the tendency to dive into the weeds on this pretty quickly here, but, Pull but me out. yeah, no. And I don't mind doing that, but I think a little bit, of, I think a little bit of like, what are the big rocks? What are the big differences? Um, between men and women, and in particular in an endurance and an ultra endurance setting, let's try to like set that table first and then yeah. start to drill down into the practical like research application and all of the little, you know, fine hairs or big hairs that we can start to split apart from there. So Stacy, I'll let you like take it away from there. Like what are the, what are the big, big practical like take home messages? So um, there are, two to three really key things that female endurance athletes need to know. The first is we have sex differences in muscle enzyme activity. So that means that intensity is an issue for recovery. So if you look, women can primarily do two really hard days and then they need a day off. Men can do three to four hard days in a row. And when you're following a training program that isn't specific to women, women tend to fall into more of that overreach, overtraining, fatigue factor. The other thing within that same scope is that women have more of a protein for um, free fatty acid use. So that means that they're more predisposed to being successful in ultra endurance, not because of estrogen, not because of um, you know, their Q angle or their stature, but comes down to metabolism of, of what's happening in the muscle itself. And the fact that there's a sex difference where women can use more free fatty acids. Um, so when you're looking at a training scope, those two things really need to be considered. And we look at the really big rocks on top of that. The biggest thing that I deal with and try to help across the board is breaking the mentality of calories in, calories out. Because women, especially um, ultra-endurance women, tend to put on a little bit more body fat than someone who's doing high-intensity or shorter distance. And it's not for lack of, of quality nutrition, or anything like that, it's primarily a lack of eating appropriately for what they're doing and getting enough calories in. So they get into a low energy state. And it's it comes into a point where if you're doing ultra running, ultra endurance, um, that you're you're slow anyway, just by the nature of the sport you have to for that duration. And so you don't really pick up on the early signs of fatigue from having low energy. So if we were to address a little bit of the training scope and then just making sure they're eating enough for daily function as well as the training to get women out of that breakdown state, 
then those are two, maybe three, two huge wins for women who are endurance athletes because then they will progress and see fitness improving, less injury time, so less downtime from injury, better sleep, better body composition, better strength. Um, so that would be like the two things that I would have every coach, every athlete who is kind of new and playing in the whole women versus men thing to take into consideration. And we see this play out a little bit at our training camps, which you've been to, Stacy, mm-hmm. right? And we, we have good diversity in our training camps. I mean, the last one that you went to is, is pretty much a 50-50 split right down the middle, mm-hmm. uh, 15 men, 15 women. And the, one of the consistent themes that start that starts to come out of those camps that I think you actually got to see because you came in on either the second to either after the second day or after the last day. I can't remember which one it was, but one of the consistent themes that we start to see is, is that as each day progresses and as the, as the athletes get more and more fatigued and just to set this up a little bit further at our training camps, we typically can get the athletes there to double or triple their volume for a short period of time because they're in an isolated training environment and they're taking care of themselves and they're in a beautiful place and they're getting fed and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, they just want to take advantage of the weekend. So it's a big training stress. But after the second and third days, as everybody starts to get fatigued, the gap between the men and the women start to get smaller and smaller and smaller. And typically what happens is the women jump up a speed group and the men jump down a speed group. And there's probably a whole host of factors, like not just physiological factors that go into that actual happening. But we've seen that for like before I even knew you. I mean, I've been doing this stuff for 20 years and we've been seeing that in our in our camp environments for forever. And it's been really neat to see just in the last, as you mentioned, like four to maybe six years or so some of the underpinnings of why that is actually the case. We used to always just like put it on our women are just smarter that, which is true. They're just smarter. They're just pacing (laughs) themselves better. And you know, they've got, you know, some kind of knack of, you know, managing the stress load and things like that. And I think all, all of those are absolutely true, but there is some additional physiological underpinning to that as well. Yeah. And I um, read a lot of articles now where people are talking about, oh, it's estrogen. Estrogen increases free fatty acid. But it's not. Like, even women who are um, menopausal or they don't have any estrogen for some particular reason still have that same advantage. And, again, it comes down to the um, muscle metabolism. So all this about women shortening the gap, once you get more women involved in the sport and taking it as their own sport, It'll be very interesting to see how fast that gap closes. Yeah. Well, that's been theorized for years Mm -hmm. that there is some point 200 miles, 300 miles, six days or something like that. There's some there's some point where women are going to outperform men and people have tried to deduce that point with math. Right, mm-hmm. just looking at the 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 gaps from the hundred meter race all the way to the marathon to ultra marathon distances and things like that, and then just extrapolating that math to some far out point, and then they've tried to combine that with physiology and some of yep. the things that uh, some of the things that you that you just mentioned, and I don't know the answer to it. I mean, I don't know if there is going to be that yeah. point or not, like way far out there, but it's an intriguing thing nonetheless. And it's gone in a few cycles right now, um, at yeah. least that I've seen over the years. 
But the key thing that they're not taking into consideration is the training methodology, right? So up to this point, all the women have been following the same kind of things as men, primarily the periodization programs, right? That are not taking into account the ergogenicity of their hormones, right? So if you're putting in a huge amount of training stress in the time of your menstrual cycle or, you know, if you're using OC or something like that, when your body is more able to handle that higher load and recover from it, and you're pinpointing when we want to do those key workouts and get a better fitness adaptation. Those strategies haven't been put in play yet. So right. it's when we unlayer everything and we're just looking at, you know, people are talking about the different shoes and the technology that come on board to make people faster. And it's like, but no one's looking at the basic training scopes of how do we tweak things in training to maximize performance for women if we're looking at when their body can take the load the best adapt to it, and then when can we deload when their body needs to deload? Okay, let's get into that, because <clears throat> as Stephanie will attest to, I really like training architecture. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephanie, is that a true yeah. statement? No, it's a true statement, and I think this is a fantastic conversation, because not only are women behind men in terms of our introduction to sport, especially in the ultra world, women are still so far behind in the numbers. And all of our models are based on what has been done for males. And so this is a really great opportunity for females to close that gap. Because like you said, there's the physiology, women are primed to be good, longer endurance athletes. And we just need to understand how women work to really, you know, facilitate yeah. that. Yeah. So in general training architecture, there's several strategies that we're not going to beat to death right now, but some of them are, okay, you can move from low volume to high volume or high intensity to low intensity. You're kind of like cycling in these different periods of volume and intensity and perhaps strength training and specificity and things like that all to meet like some end goal. And they have a zillion different names. And now that yep. Stacy, you're involved in the strength training side, the strength training people, they over contrive periodization like no other group. I mean, yes. it, it, am I, am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's like an, it's like a military launch. Every time I see some sort of strength training architecture or strength training periodization for any team sports or strength train or bodybuilding or powerlifting or anything like that, it just makes, it just makes my head explode. Endurance athletes. I'm having, I have a PhD student that I'm trying to um, unteach everything she's learned as an SNC. <laughs> it's hard. It's, it's hard. It's very hard. Um, yeah. But but we're not going to rehash a lot of that here because we've yeah. talked about that in, in podcasts before. But one of the things that I was I was never taught as a coach, and I'm tr I'm trying to learn or unlearn. I don't know exactly how I would describe it right now is how to modify that periodization for female athletes, because there are differences between male and females, but we're both still humans and some right. things are going to apply. Some physiological things are going to apply. What are the, like the training components, the training periodization pieces that should be different for women? Um, if you are looking at hitting that top end, so you're looking at the um, high intensity stuff, right? So there are different aspects. So you have the, sh the short interval high intensity, and then you have more of your VO2, which are your you know, five minute kind of things. And 
like I was saying earlier, um, you can have a block of high intensity and you apply it. And I've, I've seen it so many times, especially in, in the cycling world, like in cycling camps and stuff. You'll start, and for the first two to three days, the women and the men, pretty similar in their intensity and, and what they can do. And then about day three to four, the women are really dropping back. Um, but they're still trying to do that intensity. And again, it comes down to they need more recovery. So it's like two days intensity, 36 hours. So you do morning, morning, and then a night. Um, so it's understanding just how you can bring them right up to it and then pull it back. Um, just because of the enzyme differences and, and the recovery differences that we have. If we look over the course of an entire menstrual cycle, because we know that the menstrual cycle is short or long, and as a female athlete, a lot of times you will have a little bit of irregularity. The best tool that a coach can have is to have their athlete tracking, not to say, okay, well, everyone in the follicular phase or low hormone phase needs to do X, Y, Z. It's more understanding the patterning of your athlete. So like some women will feel super fantastic around ovulation and you can put in a really hard day and they recover well from it. But other women feel really super flat and can't do that hard day for like 36 hours. So in the scope of what you're doing, you know that you can push really hard and get really good either neuromuscular work done, like the heavy loading stuff or that high end stuff or six reps of a relatively moderately to high intense um, session when those hormones are relatively low. But as soon as estrogen and progesterone start coming up and they affect everything from metabolism to um, amino acid pool, neurotransmitter, that kind of stuff, this is where we need to start going, okay, well, we need a little bit more steady state work, not so much high intensity work because of the way that the hormones have affected um, even your respiration or your respiratory rate, your resting heart rate the switch over from being able to use more carbohydrate to having to use more fatty acids. The fact that within the muscle, women can oxidize more lysine and not leucine. So there's all these different factors that come into play. So from a, a coaching and training standpoint, it's let's bring that down and just work on like the sweet spot training, not that high intensity, not the really low stuff because the really low stuff we want to put a little bit later when we have less ability for cognition and reaction time. So we can work on functional movement, we can work on um, foot placement, landing mechanics, all that kind of stuff in kind of what we call the deload. So if we're looking at in an entire scope, it's understanding where you can push and be hard. And within that hardness, you still have to be very careful of two days and a 36 hour recovery to maximize what the female body can do. And then getting more into um, like that steady state, not super low, not super high, because then you're maximizing that performance effect there. And then the few days before the period starts, this is where you can work on all that functional movement, working on a lot of people like, oh, well, I feel really clumsy and I trip and I fall during that time. We work on that foot placement so that if you end up having a race during that time, it's a non-issue. Stephanie's laughing during this, like you've experienced that. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and if I could add to just like a practical application of this, I think uh, myself as an athlete and as a coach, um, personally, I use an app 
to track my menstrual cycle. And I've done this for years. And I think it's such a great tool for me to learn about myself when I'm tired, when I'm moody, when I feel awful, when I'm bloated, because you can really use that to your advantage when you're training. And I know for me personally, when I start to menstruate, I usually feel great. Like that's a really good time to be, you know, have a good performance. And I just think female athletes can learn so much about themselves just simply by tracking their, their symptoms. And I mean, working with a coach and being able to have that open dialogue is so important. And I think more people are becoming comfortable saying the word period and talking about the menstrual cycle, which is a barrier we need to break through. Um, yeah. But I, I just think like more knowledge, the more you can use that to your benefit. Yeah. And it's not, um, like the one thing I do want to point out when we talk about tracking is I have some women who are like, I'm tracking. So I know I can't do this on this day. Cause I'm feeling like oh. shit. Right. So sorry. I swear. Um, you can cuss on this podcast. It will not be, you know, novel to the listeners. Nice. <laughs> it's fine. But what I don't want people to do is use it as an excuse. What right. What I do want people yeah. to do is they're aware of the fact that they might feel like shit, but then what can they do about it? Then there's specific like little nutrition interventions you put into play to level that playing field. So then it's not an off day. Because if you go into a race going, I usually feel like shit on this day and it's race day, that plays with the mind. So if you're looking at having that patterning and understanding the days where you feel on fire and other days where you feel not so great, you can put things like branched amino acids in for central nervous system fatigue. You can add a little bit more salt to your food to moderate some of the risk of hyponatremia, if you feel flat in the legs and not on fire, then maybe you have to do a longer plyo-type workout to get everything firing from a neuromuscular sense. So there's small little things you can do to level that so that you don't have an off day. But Stacey, here's, let me try to like synopsize a little bit of like what you just went through and Mm -hmm. feel if I'm not giving this justice, please push back on it. Yeah. The, The two big things that that you just went through are first women are just going to need more interspersed rest Mm -hmm. as compared to men because when they're doing hard workloads. Yep. And then the second thing is I'm going to try to bring this back to like periodization terminology because the listeners will be somewhat familiar with this is that you're using more of a mixed periodization to take advantage of what's going on in the body naturally versus what we would call a block periodization to take advantage of the concentration of training load on a specific type of physiology. Right, exactly. And using the mixed load doesn't mean you're not going to get the training volume. It just means that you're going to be able to recover from it and your body's going to absorb that volume a lot better than if you were to use the traditional high volume and we're going to progress you know, every week, every two weeks, every three weeks, and then have a deload. That makes sense. Yeah, because, well, one of the things that started to emerge, especially in endurance sports and particularly in cycling, I don't need to tell you this, Stacey, because you've seen it a lot with the men's teams that you've worked with, is this block style periodization where they load up on one type of intensity for weeks and weeks and weeks and months. And we use this in ultra running a lot as well, just because it's so specific to this low intensity thing. Mm-hmm. And w- what I'm hearing from you is that might, is that pieces of that might, be incompatible with women's physiology because you're forcing like a physiological square peg into into uh, uh, into the round hole. Yeah, exactly. 
And the way that I like if I throw up slides or something like that and explain it is I put up the, your typical like three weeks on, one week off, and overlay it over a typical 28-day menstrual cycle. That works perfectly, right? Because you have your, your right. loading during the phases you can and then the deloading in the high hormone week. But we know that women are not textbook. So say a woman has a 40-day cycle, then you're putting some of the deload right in the time where her body can still accept that high intensity. And then you're putting high intensity right in the point where she should be lowering her intensity and working more on functional movement. And then for women who have really short cycles, so, you know, 21 to 25 days, it's the follicular phase that lengthens unless they aren't ovulating. And that's a whole different conversation. So you can really load it up and have a very small deload. So understanding the cycle really helps you dial in what kind of periodization model you're going to use. Um, which then works to the women's advantage for the recovery and preventing injury and progressing. I think that takes as a coach, a lot of communication with the athlete and just thinking of like, you know, the, the number of athletes I work as a coach as well. Um, the number of athletes that I work with, it's just, you know, in everyone you have a little bit different relationship, but I think, you know, that, that becomes challenging because, you know, how do you take this and apply it to each individual person? Because they're so they're so different. Um, personally, I just, you know, try to be communicative and like understand what, you know, if, if we're talking about the menstrual cycle or when do you feel good, when do you not feel good? And, you know, it's, it's kind of still like we don't have like a general template for this of like, this is how you train a female athlete. So yeah. I, I think a lot of it is like, I don't want to say trial and error right now, but it's, you know, we have a lot to learn. Yeah. And it is, I mean, it sounds really complicated when we're having a conversation about it, but um, one of the methods that I found useful for women who don't want to have the conversation or can't is you have that overlay of training peaks. Like we all are pretty familiar with training peaks, right? So they put a little notation day one. So, you know, right. Or they'll put a notation in on day 14. They'll be like, day, I feel awful. So you're seeing some of the patterning. It's not the direct communication, but it's not having that face-to-face, but it gives you enough information to know. So if they're having a short cycle and you're seeing it short because they're day one and then three and a half weeks later, day one, then you know, what you know. okay, well, we have, we're working with a short cycle. And it gives you more insight to how that athlete is working without having to be really scripted and individual with every athlete and have a huge intake and keep that communication going. Um, but then you have some athletes who are very verbally robust in their training peaks, right? <laughs> yes, some good novels. Yes. I love that, <laughs> Which verbally is not, robust. It's not a bad thing, but no, it's not. you can get a lot of information and dial it in, right? So, yeah. Um, I started working with a, and this isn't a plug for them, I'm just, because I'm impressed with their technology. I want to tell you guys about it. Um, Wild AI is a new, artificially artificially intelligence driven menstrual cycle app. And so they're integrating with a lot of coaches and coaches platforms as well. So it takes that onerous off having to have that conversation because the more data that the woman puts in, the more it learns about the woman. And so can feed forward that information to the coach and say, hey, in two days, your athlete usually feels this way or does this or feeds back to the athlete. In two days, you usually feel really fantastic or you don't feel that great. So make sure two days before that you're doing X, Y, Z or on this day, you do that. So it's taking a lot of that confusion out 
because it's just there. And I think there's a lot to be said for artificial intelligence to be able to learn just basic information that we tend to forget to kind of talk about. 100%. So we've got these, these few variables that we're changing. The first one is the rest. The second one is looking at the, at the menstrual cycle through the lens of when the athlete is going to be better and worse. I think that's the best mm -hmm. way, kind of the best way to put it. Let me try to like summarize some of the pushback that you mentioned yeah. earlier, because I, I want to hear the, I want to hear your response to this and I can completely understand where this is coming. A lot of coaches will say, well, first off, we're going to do that anyway. We're going to listen to the athlete and when they're doing good and when they're doing poorly and adjust training load and training intensity based off of that, regardless of whether they're male or female. And then the second part to that is that if you're manipulating the training volume and training intensity to, to coincide with what's going on hormonally, you're substituting one improvement for another. And the one improvement is, is taking advantage of that, of those hormones and that physiology. But the compromise is, is there's a better training architecture that can somehow elicit a bigger adaptation. And so does that, does that teeter totter, right? Does that compromise actually make sense for an athlete? Like, like quote, unquote, I'm going to use air quotes here that the listeners can't see. Does that compromise in the training architecture? to take advantage of the physiology, is it actually worth it? Or is it in fact a compromise at all? It's not a compromise. And I hear the pushback all the time from coaches. Oh, I listen to my athlete, but athletes don't tell you a lot. Like we have been doing in-depth interviews and taking a sociologist in and um, qualitative methodology to look at the physiology data that we're getting. And I'll look at data and I'll be like, okay, well, this person needs a little bit of rest. But when you get the interview and overlay, it's not rest. It's they're not eating or they're not sleeping or they're not paying attention. And so when you're looking just at the data that's coming out and you're not overlaying it even with the menstrual cycle, which interrupts those variables, um, it, you're not going to have the appropriate conversation to pull the person back. And when you start saying, okay, well, when we get into like a low energy state that happens with high volume training loads, and appetite gets muted, and you'll see this progression, this complete fall off. If you knew where they were in their menstrual cycle and knew how um, like low energy availability affected them, and you start seeing these perturbations, you can pull back a lot earlier. But they're not going to be able to tell you what's going on. They're just going to say, I feel flat. I'm tired. I feel flat. I feel tired. But without that extra context within it, you can't have the appropriate conversation to be able to dial in for your athlete and pull them back before they're too far over the ledge of, of being too tired. So what you're saying and, is, is like it enhances the communication and also is it has an anticipatory effect as well, where you're, where you're being not reactive and instead proactive to what's exactly. going, going to go on in a couple of days. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I think that's fair strategy. I mean, cause I, yeah. once again, I've heard that pushback as well. And also as a, like a coach from a practitioner, from a practitioner standpoint, I will fully admit, and Steph is an athlete that I, that, that I coach as well, I fully admit that I wrestle with the, do I really need to change this that much because of what's going on? Like, is it really going to make that, or should I just, you know, drive the training hammer home a little bit more and have the athlete, you know, do whatever they were supposed to do that day? Yeah. And then this is where I'm going to really kind of mess up that conversation <laughs> is... <laughs> 
when you start getting to perimenopausal women, so this is what we've been observing because they're, you know, it's the forgotten athlete. So what we're observing is because you have such irregularity of the hormones, you're never really sure when the period's going to come or not. What we found is that seven to five days before their period starts, there's two days where it's absolute dead fatigue. And you can't say it's from lack of sleep or stress. All of those things have been going on. So they go from this lethargy that's the new normal to like, I can't get out of bed. I don't know what the hell's going on. And then five or seven days later, their period starts. So being able to be understanding that that's happening, there's no like way you can push the training on those days. It's just this whole hormonal milieu and change of ratios that is affecting every system in the body trying to relearn a new normal. So that's the other complexity that I'm going to pass to you to have to kind of get over it is what you're trying to tell me. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, I mean, fortunately, you know, and Stephanie has this um, experience as well. We work with athletes across the spectrum. So if anything, I mean, we get a lot, I see a lot of uh, uh, like national team coaches and things like that with the training center here in Colorado Springs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If anything, they get so ingrained with working with a very particular type of athlete that you ask them to move outside of that age group or that particular phenotype that's really good and adapts to anything and can handle any sort of training volume. And they're just like, I I don't, I don't know what to do. Like, I I don't know. I don't know what to do with that athlete. And so like we, we get, get it working in the commercial space because yeah. we have to work with all of those different types of athletes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ultra running has a really diverse group of athletes. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Age range. Yeah. You've yeah. seen that before too, uh, Stacey. I know you have where you work with like the national team coaches and then for whatever reason you start talking about something that's like outside of their little performance scope. <laughs> and like, they're brilliant people, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like they're yeah. really brilliant physiologists and coaches, but sometimes when they move outside of that, you know, Olympic spectrum, that gold, silver, they can't make type, the jump. No, they can't make the jump. You're yeah. absolutely right. I've seen it yeah. time and time again. It's absolutely I fascinating. Know. I know, because they're fo- so focused on, you know, the top end of the making sure that they're fantastically ready for the Olympics or World Cup or whatever. And when you start saying, well, you know, let's let's break it back a level or is this person experiencing that? They're like, no, no, not on my watch. I was, <laughs> and again, it's, uh, yeah. I was, it's not to their fault. It's just that siloedness. I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day who I won't I won't embarrass um, but you know, the fact that the Olympics are moving to 2021, you would have thought that they had to like re-engineer the most complicated rocket ship and send it to Pluto. I'm like, yeah. you got all your, you, you realize it's a year, like, you know, how to plan training for one year. And they're like, no, but you don't understand how it's different. And it's, you know, five years and not four years. And now we've got to go through all this testing. I'm like, they're still athletes and they're still training for the same races. It's just a year later. It's not that much more complicated. I know. Or people here are like, sweet, that means I have a big break before I have a short, hard buildup for the Olympics. Exactly. Oh, no, it's it's different. Anyway, um, okay, let's move on, Stephanie. We're going to get into your wheelhouse now. All right. And Stacey, I would be remiss to to not talk about nutrition with you because I know this is a particular area of expertise and you and I have talked about this a lot over the course of years and the ultra running audience is going to find this fascinating because it, it it's like its own it's like its own little group 
You know, I mean, we yes. have our own little nutrition quirks and things that work mm -hmm. and appeals to authority. And mm -hmm. we do a lot of, and I think you can, you can relate to this with your research experience because it's a hard, it's a hard sport group to do research on. We have to do a lot of extrapolation of research that's done on marathoners and cyclists in the two to three to maybe four hour range. Uh, I was on the horn earlier with Alan McCubbin, and he's under undertaking. He's out of Australia, yeah. and he's undertaking a, a hydration study right now that had the runners run on the treadmill for five hours, and he's yeah. like, I can't like like this is this is unheard of. You know, we're going to have research subjects run on a treadmill for like five hours. You know, this is like some like mind blowing type of thing. But in the research world, it really is. But us ultra runners look at that and we're like, meh, like, you know, five hour training. Five runs. Yeah. I mean, right. we do five hour training runs kind of like every every weekend. It's not some big yeah. undertaking. And so I think I think this like failure of, of research to like properly study the sport of ultra running is, is really applicable. And we do have to make a lot of like educated guesses and mm -hmm. extensions of the research, just like you've had to make over your, the course of your career because the research didn't really exist. Yeah. So similar to our previous conversation or like, what are the big nuggets from a, a from a nutrition perspective within ultra running? Mm -hmm. What are the, what are the big rocks? What are the big nuggets that women need to keep in mind as they're training and preparing for these events? So, of course, the number one thing I'm going to say is women shouldn't do fasted or ketogenic dieting. That's across the board. Like hundred percent. All these people are like, oh, we need free fatty acid. We need to increase our, our metabolic efficiency and our ability to oxidize or tap into fat. Women are already there, right? And so we know that when women start doing fasted training or the ketogenic diet, they, their body really starts to get into this downturn. There's a few reasons why. One is a perturbance of uh, a key neuropeptide that starts the endocrine system. And when you don't have enough food and you don't have enough carbohydrate, in particular, this thing is turned down, turned off. So your whole endocrine system gets blown out of the water. So your resting metabolic rate goes down, you put on body fat, your menstrual cycle stops. And people are like, oh, well, I must, I must not be eating right or I must not be training hard enough. Right. So then they start putting in more volume, eating less, and it just cascades. Whereas if you take a man in the same situation, they'll excel because the sensitivity for turning down this peptin or peptide is completely different in men. So they can, they can really excel and increase fatty acid oxidation and excel in training and all that kind of stuff in fasted, intermittent fasted and ketogenic diets. So when I start talking to a bunch of ultra women, a lot of them are like, oh, I, put, I have a little bit of extra body fat I'd like to lose. And so we start looking at what they're doing. Definitely under eating, definitely under protein, not enough carbohydrate. So when you start addressing, let's just initially fuel for each training session and recover really well. That tends to stop this breakdown state after exercise and their body gets into more of a relaxed state. And it doesn't take on that whole, let's bring the resting metabolic rate down, let's perturb the thyroid, let's um, you know, downturn all your metabolic or your endocrine hormones. So that's the very first step is eating in and around your training. And then when you're looking at what am I eating in training, that depends on time and duration. If you're going out for a five hour run, you have the ability to eat some real food. But when you're looking at 
a hundred miles and your body is really perturbed and you know that there's some points where you're like, I can't eat a thing. So you'll know where those down points are. So when you're going out for your really long time on the feet type stuff, this is where you play around and go, okay, well, I don't want liquid calories because of the fact that it's going to increase the pressure in my gut. It's going to cause some systemic dehydration and I'm not going to be able to push through that malaise that I have. Um, and we don't want that because once you start having gut perturbations and having to slow down your pace, it's really hard to come back from that. So we start looking at what are you eating and with the lower intensity aspect of ultra running, it's the real food is much better than looking at the engineered sport nutrition. Um, we also know that fat and protein and carbohydrate all help each other to digest and get out of the stomach. So you get this titration of energy instead of like this one big swoop from using just simple carbohydrate. And I mean, there's a lot of research that'll show in that five hour range of like what to do. But when we start looking at adventure racing, which fits into that ultra endurance stuff, um, nobody's using gels. No one's using, um, you know, all the liquid calories because it just affects the performance so much. So when you're taking an eye into that ultra endurance stuff and looking at what's happening with um, fluid shifts just from time on the feet and being awake and the um, dehydration that's happening with the electrolyte shifts, your body needs that real food just to be able to maintain some sense of normalcy. Um, yeah, so kind of off on a tangent. From there, so. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good tangent. I'm just like <laughs> nodding my head just in agreement with everything you're saying. Well, I've been, Steph, you heard me say this in our coaching ed calls as well, but I'll mention this to you, Stacey. I, I am a little bit worried that this trend of intermittent fasting, low carbohydrate adaptation, um, ketogenic diets that we see in ultra endurance event, not just in ultra running, but also in ultra triathlon and things like that, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that we're going to, as women start to come into the sport, they're going to take that up because they see it prevalent across mm -hmm. the entirety of the sport, which tends to be made up of men. And yeah. I, the reason that I'm worried about that is because similar to your experience at Western States, I don't want women to have a bad experience in the sport. I want women to like come into the sport. And if that's yeah. a, if that's a component of it, they come into the sport and they think, oh, in order to, you know, be able to finish Western States or whatever, I have to have this you know, fat metabolism magic going on or anything like that. And they have a negative experience either through training or the race because of that, that reinforces this problem that we already have. Yeah. And a negative. Some... Oh, sorry. I oh, I was just some... going to go ahead. <laughs> I said, there's some really good robust research that's been coming out this year. Well, I, I don't really count 2020, but there, there is something out in 2020. <laughs> um, end of 2019 and the beginning of this year that's really showing that women don't do well on these fat-adapted diets. Um, Louise Burke just replicated her race-walking one in women yes. and men, right? So that's one of them. There's been some that where they phased women in off of carbohydrate-oriented into ketogenic, got through the keto flu, then looked at muscle activity and performance, and it was a complete, complete like downturn in performance, even though they had adapted fully to the ketogenic diet. So there's so many things that are coming out. It's like when you look at some of the rationale behind it as well is the original population of the ketogenic and intermittent fasting were clinical populations who need to lose weight quickly or didn't have insulin control or anything like that. But when you look at the exercise data, exercise does all those things that fasting does and the ketogenic diet does. 
to a greater extent. And when you layer them, that's when you start having all these problems. And people don't separate that. And that's part of the whole fitness fitness industry, right? Where they're bombarded with all these myths to make a shit ton of money. And then it gets translated into outside of the gym into kind of real sport. And no one's really saying, hey, wait a second. You're exercising. You're going to have the autophagy. You're going to have the adaptation. And then if you really want to benefit your body, let's eat real food to support the gut microbiome, to get the butyrates going so we have some really good, robust um, healing properties. You know, so people aren't having those conversations because we're so inundated with all the crap that comes out of the fitness industry. That has always been my issue with the met- what I call the metabolic magicians out there that yes. think that some metabolic strategy has some magic adaptation that, you know, that, that happens because of it. You just look at exercise and or caloric restriction, and it does all the exact same things that intermittent fasting does or low carbohydrate diet does or anything like mm-hmm. that. Just exercise. And if you need to lose some weight, just normal caloric restriction. Yeah, right. And the the appetite hormonal response between a trained individual and an untrained sedentary individual are very different. So it's not like applying what the intermittent fasting or low carbohydrate, whatever's working to help someone lose weight to just restrict calories. That's maybe not going to have the same response in a well-trained athletic population. It it doesn't have the same response. Right. I always tell people like exercise in itself is a low carb and fasted state. Right. So you don't need to do it. And right. then if you do want to lose weight, don't do it in and around training people. Like eat for what you were doing. And then in the afternoon, far away from training, that's when you can have a calorie deficit. Like don't put some sauces on, skip the salad dressing, don't have a couple of snacks before dinner. And right away you're having around a 300 calorie deficit, yeah. which is enough yeah. not to perturb the body to conserve, but to lose a little bit of body fat. Yeah. So it's need- too sensible. People don't want to listen. I know. I know. So <laughs> need- need- needless to say, women getting into ultra running run away from intermittent fasting and the ketogenic diet as fast as you yes. can. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, and I want to I want to say too, I am sure we're going to maybe get into this, but a lot of the women who are runners in the ultra running population are low energy and amenorrheic. Oh, yeah. It's oh, yeah. you know, and so <laughs> that's just another reason to avoid this type of eating. And I think, you know, we'd be um, remiss to not mention this because it's such an important, it's such an important health and just, I mean, it's performance, but it's health for these women. So, and yeah. um, I mean, Stacy, kind of just what you said, like these women who are experiencing who, you know, under eat for the activity that they're doing, they may eat, like, you know, 2000, 2500 calories a day, which seems like a lot, but for that energy output, it's not appropriate. Mm-hmm. And they feel tired, they start to feel draggy. And so a lot of runners are type A or very perfectionist, highly driven, and they're just going to dig in harder. They're going to try yeah. to manipulate their diet, they're going to train more. And it's just like this snowball effect of like, no, if you take a step back, you actually eat more. Your metabolism is going to pick back up. You're going to feel better. You're going to get your menstrual cycle back. And then it's all going to, it's all going to come together. But it's so hard to break through that barrier with women who are so like, just think they need to just like put their head yeah. down. Yeah, yeah. And just go hard. So Train it's a constant, a constant battle. Yeah. Um, I know. And I, I have worked with a lot of amenorrheic women and successfully just adding like 300 calories a day over, it takes time over months, 
six mm-hmm. months to a year, that can restart the menstrual cycle. So it's not like you have to, you know, reinvent your body, but just giving it that extra energy it needs, you know, to function <laughs> as a human being, um, then it can, you know, be healthy and then performance follows that. Yeah, I've gotten pushed back because I've gone on record saying, you know, like, if you're looking at a baseline of 200 calories or looking at the delta from increasing calorie and decreasing training, then you get your period back. But there's some um, people out there who are like, no, complete rest and everyone needs 2,500 calories. And it's like, well, there's not a lot of people out there who can do complete rest. And it's not for the fact, well, maybe they have a professional contract. Like I've worked with a few professional athletes who can't not train, cannot stop racing because it's in their contract. Mm -hmm. And then I've also worked with people who are like, I'm not running or I'm not cycling just because I love it. I need to do it because it's my mental release. It's my time alone. So it's a downward spiral. So just understanding, yeah, like you're saying, it's that delta, right? So Mm -hmm. you're increasing calorie intake and you're tweaking volume of training so the deficit isn't as huge, then yeah, you get your cycle back. And I don't know an athlete who, if you said you just need to rest and just continue to eat well, they're going to be okay with that. It's going to feel no. awful. So I know. people tend to eat better when they're active. You, that You may be changing around volume a little bit, um, reducing training load, but some activity I think is super helpful for, you know, the normalcy of it (laughs) for the normal people of us. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I think we'd be remiss not to also mention that this not only happens to elite athletes, because when we talk about reds or is it red S in where you are, Stacy, or is it red? Yeah. We both. You say both. both. So we're talking about relative energy deficiency in sport. Typically, what gets lost in that is, is that we're only talking about Olympic level athletes. Cause that's where a lot of the kind of the communication gets filtered down from is from the IOC or from the national governing bodies and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, is that it affects it, it or it can affect all athletes. And Men I'd like and actually, absolutely. I mean, I'd actually Men like to know women. from both of your perspectives, since you are both in the nutrition world and you work with a lot of female athletes, how common is it outside and for, first i think we should give a good definition of reds and stacy i'll let you take the lead on that and yeah. then and then go into like how prevalent is that in just the normal athletic fe- male or female population well i'll put it this way i i if i could bet money on this i would say 98 percent of the athletes that show up at kona world championships are either in full low energy availability or reds. Okay. 98%. Yeah. All right. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that bet going in Vegas. I'll pull some strings for you and we'll we'll see. I'm sure it's going to start out as like a, you know, negative 120 uh, favorite right out of the bat. Yeah. 98%. Wow. Yeah. We've done some um, general population, like recreational female athlete research. And we know that close to 50% are in low energy availability. And that's just general population. And part of it is, you know, the whole push of calories in, calories out. I don't want to overeat what I just expended or they do an early morning workout and then they don't eat and then they stay in this extended catabolic state. So there are many factors, but it's very prevalent. And when you get up to the upper echelons, it's really, really super prevalent and no one talks about it. Yeah. Like it's the siloed quietness and it's, mm-hmm. it's endemic in men, it's endemic in women. And when you filter down, it's becoming more um, apparent in 
recreational men as well. So it's more suboptimal, low energy availability where they're just on the cusp of being fatigued. Everything in the blood work looks like it's on the low end of normal, but it's too low for them. Um, and it's really hard to diagnose. And so when you start seeing all the symptomology in both men and women, just upping the food a little bit and you start to see the difference, right? When we talk about full relative energy deficiency in sport, this is where almost every system of the body is affected. So it used to be, you know, the subset of the female athlete triad where you start having bone issues and metabolic issues and no period. But now it extends across the board to GI issues, psychological issues, um, immune issues, cardiovascular issues. You get blood work back and the person's all over the show and they're supposed to be an athlete. And they're like, I don't understand what's going on. It's like, it's reds. It's relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's relatively new and we're working on it as well as looking at no one's saying, okay, well, you have GI distress and you also have immune distress. Well, you're probably in red. No one's doing that. They're like, GI distress, let's try to address right. that. So there's still a lot of issues within that that need to be fixed as well. But talking about it, making more and more people aware of it is, you know, another women are not small men 20-year venture. But <laughs> let's hope that it's not that long because uh, it is so prevalent. Well, in ultra running, some of this almost happens just as a byproduct of the like the training because the training mm -hmm. is so yep. long and you can't mm -hmm. keep up with the caloric demands and you do that day after day. I mean, I don't want to say it's an inevitability because it makes like the world seem hopeless or the training seem, seem, seem hopeless. But yeah. in a lot of ways, especially when you're doing like really high training volumes and ultra runners will go out there, they'll, you know, have 30 hour a week, you know, training mm -hmm. weeks and things like that, which that's not indifferent from an elite Ironman athlete to have a 30 or 40 hour, uh, uh training week. But, um, and, and I guess my point with that is, is we look at this proposition of trying to stay out of an energy deficit and sometimes you just can't avoid it. It's just how, how good or how adept you are at making sure the hole that you're digging is not too deep. And the best thing to do about that, again, is shut down the breakdown state post-exercise. Don't go in unfueled. Don't delay refueling because the longer your body stays in that catabolic state post-exercise, the more LEA takes hold because we know that you can have a calorie deficit, but as long as you're fueling the body when it needs it, it doesn't go into the tizzy of down-regulating everything. So it kind of buys you some time. I don't really want people to like stay in an LEA state, but if the fact of, you know, increased training load, decreased appetite, heavy training weeks, and you just can't get the food in, then really dial in that recovery intake and the, and the pre-fueling so that your body doesn't stay in this breakdown state. I think practically for ultra runners, like this is an important concept to understand because we're used to such high volume. You know, and it's like you can do that, but then you have to take recovery time. And, you know, we're in the, the camp that like 10 miles, that's like nothing. Right. So yeah. it's like, you know, sure. understanding that you can sustain that high volume, but you have to let your body recover because you will dig that hole. And it is much easier in female athletes just because you do have the menstrual cycle as kind of a marker. And I think it's an important conversation to have with with athletes is, you know, are you getting your menstrual cycle? And if you're not. Yeah not ignoring it. Like it's not okay to just keep training and training. Um, it's something that should be addressed because things are going to happen down the line if you don't. Yeah. And it's not okay to go on an oral contraceptive pill to no. mask it. No. Which is 
Something else so many people do. <laughs> oh, I, I made me in a rig. And the doctor's like, oh, I'll put you on a pill. It's fine. Right. You'll get your period. No, you're not getting your period. You're getting withdrawal bleed, and it's masking everything that we need to know and keep track of. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Stacey. So since you brought it up, we're going to come back to the low energy availability. But since you brought it up, 5% performance reduction with an oral contraceptive. Yeah. You want to know why? Yeah. Go ahead. Go at it. First okay, off, so true or false? Um, it depends on, on the level. So it's between 2 and 11%. Okay. So the take-home message for that is, is if you want an instant performance boost and you're, not, and you're on an oral contraceptive, just change that. Easy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it really comes down to, most people think when you're taking an oral contraceptive pill and, and you have these synthetic hormones that you're taking estrogen and progesterone, but you're not. There are different molecular structures within these exogenous hormones, and it's very critical that these little hydroxyl groups, they affect the system differently. So when we're looking at that top-end performance of VO2, all those kinds of things, it downregulates your ability to hit that. And it has to do with the fact that when you're taking these pills, they exert around 500 times the, um, I guess, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, basic word effect, 500 times the effect of um, what your natural hormones will do to the cell. So you're looking at something that's, like really driving a cellular response. It's overexciting estrogen receptors. The progestin that's in it isn't the same as progesterone, so you'll have a difference in the ratios and the way they affect the body. So when you're looking at a performance boost and you're saying, hey, I can't hit that top end, I'm not recovering very well, it has a lot to do with these exogenous hormones. Easy change. Easy change. Easy change. <laughs> and, yeah. Okay. So we look a lot at, at, at the different... Like, I've, I work closely with the New Zealand Women's Sevens here because the building, that's where they're located, and I've had individual conversations. And just over the course of three years that I've been working with them, they've all become very dialed in, and a lot of them have changed from the OC to a marina. Um, so an IUD, less stress reactions, less stress fractures, less muscular injuries, better um, high-intensity training, um, I guess, capacity, as well as adaptations. So there's been a lot of subtle changes that have really been able to build on their performance. That, that was the other thing I was going to ask you with that is it's not just the pure performance boost that you can get just by switching the type of contraceptive you're using. It's also the injury susceptibility that you can, uh, that you can improve as well. And that's potentially big because those yeah, are, those huge. are, those are, those are just as big, if not bigger performance robbers than anything else out there being out being yeah. out injured for four weeks yeah exactly there's no training going on if you're injured right yeah. so you're getting that detraining not just recovery um and one of the other things i point especially with runners is the stress reactions and stress fractures and if you have low bone density one of the things that physicians will often recommend is going on the pill because supposedly it helps with bone density but it does not the estradiol that's in an OC does not stimulate the bone growth factors that you need. If you have an estrogen patch, it's different because it's a different formulation. And it does enhance insulin growth factor one. And it does enhance your body's ability to build bone. So again, I'm just saying that if you're predisposed, like there's so many reasons not to be on the pill, unless they, you have like endometriosis or PCOS or other health conditions that require you or you find benefit from being on the estrogen component of an OC. Yeah. 
Well, and we all know how injury-ridden running is. I was reading this study for an article that I'm going to write in the next couple of weeks where they followed 23 runners for two years, and they made them – the whole basis of the study is they were tracking their acute and chronic workloads and trying to figure out the ratios and what the the step-ups mean and things like that. But like within the first paragraph of the uh, of the abstract of this study, said okay, we're following these twenty three runners. After two years, twenty two of them had a significant injury that caused more than four, like four. I think it was four training days. I mean, they had a pretty high threshold for what an injury was. Where they lost more than four training days. So that's everybody. Yeah, that's crazy. It's not, but it's not. It's like that's the norm. Like it's yeah. like everybody. That's like, a crazy norm. It's a crazy. I know. Set, right? I know. Why would people sign up for this? It's, it's, okay, let's come. Let's steer it back a little bit, back onto onto the nutrition side, because I want to get your I want to get your take on something specific with uh, ultra running and what we were discussing with low energy availability. One of the things that makes this so complicated for ultra runners to figure out is the daily difference in caloric requirements that they're going to have as a product of their training. So an athlete can go out on a 60-minute or 45-minute recovery run, which should be the appropriate length of a recovery run, right? About 45 minutes. 45-minute recovery run, and that's going to cost them four to 600 calories or something like that. They can then go out on a six-hour training run, and that's going to cost them 3,600 or 4,000 calories, and yep. the difference between that recovery run day and that long run day is so great. And the quantity of food that they need to cover that long run day as compared to the recovery run day is so different. That's where a lot of athletes screw it up because they yeah. literally have mm-hmm. to eat sometimes twice as much food from one day to the next. And as a coach, and Stephanie can attest to this, like in our coaching group and also like working with athletes, I bang my head against the wall trying to like reinforce this with athletes. So I'm wondering like how, like how, how can an athlete wrap their head around trying to get that right? That difference in calories. Yeah, we know it's meaningful, but a lot of times we, a lot of times athletes miss the extent to what they, to which they actually need to cover their calories with. I think yeah. a, I think a good just a quick answer for that yeah. is telling athletes their body is not a checkbook. So not thinking of like day to day energy intake and like more dynamic. So you're probably going to need to make up some more of that on your recovery day. So paying attention to your appetite and not saying, oh, it's a recovery day. I don't need to eat as much, but knowing you're going to have this big energy expenditure day where it's going to be impossible to catch up. So thinking of it more dynamic and like your energy intake over the week needs to match your energy expenditure over the week, not necessarily day to day. Yeah, exactly. As I would say, when we are working with, because cyclists, the same thing, right? You right. can go out and have a four or five hour ride and spend that, but you don't have an appetite and you're not eating enough, right? So it's like the day after that, you're most likely going to still not have an appetite, but you need to eat more. So we put it as you train hard, even recovery days, you want to make sure that you're eating and drinking appropriately for each session. So you're, you're moderating what you're eating and drinking. But then on recovery day, like even if you're not on the bike or you're not running, you need to eat. Because I've worked with so many athletes who've been told, oh, recovery day, no activity, 1100 calories. That's all I need. It's like, no, no. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Recovery means food. Your body needs food to recover. So if it's an easy, active recovery day, you still need to eat. Bring the calories up. Because it is. It's the dynamics of the week. From the day-to-day standpoint, stop that breakdown state after exercise. And then from a week state, make sure that you don't have more than maybe a 600-calorie deficit across the entire week, which people are like, how do I figure that out? But if you're looking at, okay, well, this is a 600-calorie deficit across the entire week, that's more like a weight restriction, like weight loss restriction, not a huge low energy state. So the way that you're looking at it is almost over like a five or a seven day rolling period where you need to balance the energy over those longer periods of time. And at the same time, the days that are really high caloric output days, just focusing on kind of controlling the damage to a certain extent by making sure that before, during, after the activity, you've got just as many calories that you can kind of fathomably stand. Yeah, and the quality calories too. Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. Because you okay. want to take care of our gut. That's true. That's true. Absolutely true. Totally and we know that's a big issue as well. I mean, that's one of the things that I learned from you is just how how the foodstuffs that, um, uh, that we take in can uh, uh, can affect our gut and how big of an issue this is in ultra running and so much so Stacy I think I think you realize that I completely plagiarized your uh, rice ball recipe I gave you credit for it so it's not technically not plagiarization but I completely plagiarized your rice ball recipe and put it into my book and it is a huge hit like we use it at our camps yeah people love it I still I see people at races that use it and I I I make it a point to try to take as little credit as possible and push all the credit over towards you. So if you get any, yeah, if you get if you get any feedback on it, I've been trying to push it your way for like the last five or six years. Yeah. Well, I haven't, I'm excited about this, so I'm not going to say who it is, but I have an incoming PhD student from the States. He's moving over here with his wife. And he's specifically interested in ultra running and ultra endurance and what kind of foods to eat to minimize gut perturbance, to help with energy levels. So, um, yeah, we're going to get some real research going in the home of ultra running here in this area. So maybe I'll put that in. Yeah, maybe I'll put the rice ball in for his research. Hey, I'll I'll help you fund that research. How's that? Oh, thanks, man. Um, Come on over. Get locked down with us. Yeah, there you go. I'll I'll volunteer to be a subject. I'll make it, I'll make, once you open the country up, I'll make a special trip down there just to participate in it. Maybe you can self-quarantine in our guest room. There you go. What's your hunch though? You know, we use a lot of sports nutrition products, like copious Mm -hmm. amounts of -hmm. sports nutrition products. I mean, I know very successful ultra runners and I've Mm -hmm. seen them do this. They show up to a hundred mile race with a case, a 48 pack of goo energy gels, Mm -hmm. all one flavor. And that's Mm -hmm. all they'll use for the hundred miles. And they're really, really successful at it. You know, other athletes that can maybe stomach two or three gels. If that. If that. So what's the, in order to prevent GI distress in an ultra marathon situation, what, like, what are the, like, what are the big things that you're going to tell your PhD student to try to like tease out? Well, it's kind of multifaceted. First, you have your sex differences and gut integrity. We also really want to look at the gut microbiome and how that changes leading into a taper week. Um, there's a good article that came out 
couple of months ago that was looking at the two weeks before, the two days before, and what happens during an ultra. So getting some idea of, of the metabolic differences of the gut when it's under stress can inform what you should be eating to help promote that whole um, vagus nerve and the uh, gut-brain axis to kind of help with that GI stress. Um, so yeah, it, it, there's a lot of different things to look at. And it's also, okay, well, what if people are successful on liquid calories? Like what makes them unique? Is it a genetic scope? Is it a gut microbiome scope? Is it training the gut scope? Are they translatable and transferable to people who can't do that? Or would these people who are really successful on liquid calories do a lot better if they put in real food? So those are all the kind of questions that are there. But it is a three-year PhD, so we need to bring it down and answer the most <laughs> significant questions. So, yeah, happy to, to take some what do you think is the most significant question that we could try to answer? Well, I don't know whether it's a byproduct of just sports nutrition companies trying to, like, have more products available or whether they're starting to see some of like the efficacious nature of having diversity in their sports nutrition lines. But we are starting to see, it's not just gels, right? I mean, it, ha it hasn't been that long where it's been just like just gels. I mean, we can go back 10 years ago and that your choice was like the vanilla gel or the chocolate gel. And that was right. it. And then drink, you know, and the drinks were kind of long at the same time. But then we started having chewables and then real food mm -hmm. products and then packaged, you know, packaged bars and smarter packaged bars. And now we're seeing this, the whole movement with things that people can make at home that are rice or potato based mm -hmm. that they can, that they can kind of take along. And like baby food. Ba yeah, baby food, right? Baby food in, in sachets right now. Stephanie, yeah. you know, works for Cliff Bar. They've got I've some, used some great Cliff, products. Cliff pouches before. Yeah. There you go. They have a time and place. I have the pizza flavored one. I just couldn't get my head around that one. And you had to be like four to five hours in. It had to be hot out and you were just craving salty. Okay. I remember, I'll leave it there. I remember Dakota <laughs> had some of their um initial batches of that and he came out to my house and did some training he's like here i'll let you have some of this and i, I we were not four or five hours into the run at that point so yeah. oh, it, it did taste a lot better though i will give him that but so so there is this like real food versus engineered food proposition that athletes need to go through what's your take on that um i think well sitting over here where one cliff bar is five bucks Right. So we're looking at no one's really using that much engineered nutrition because it's too expensive. So we're a lot of people here are still on the real food bandwagon, which is great. And they're finding success with it. But then they'll go over and do something in the States and they'll find all the engineered nutrition that's super duper cheap and they'll start using it and then have gut problems. So when you're looking at what is it, what is it about real food that helps? Again, you know, if you look at Asker Jukendrup's research and he's like, oh, you can train the gut for it. Maybe. But I'm always going to come back and say, we're not as smart as nature. So when you start trying to engineer nutrition to work when the body's under the most extreme stress, I'm not sure that that's such a great thing because we don't know the cofactors in food that help the body with that kind of stress. Um, yeah, so it'll be interesting. And the more we can dig into like what's happening from a cellular and a gut level to be able to inform us on choices, I think that's going to help a lot. There's a trend now that I'm sure you started to see unfold, Stacy, with these like super caloric drinks mm. that are that yep. try to manipulate 
the structure or how the carbohydrate is delivered, either in like a hydrogel or actually the structure of the carbohydrate. And you, you like this. So this is why I'm asking this topic because I'm kind of trying to like push your buttons a little bit on this, <laughs> Stacey. Um, but I've always found this is like something, it, it's, a, it's a proposition where you have a plausible mechanism of action that's going on and then mm-hmm. you design a product around it and just like kind of guess if it works or not. Yeah. So I sat in a, um, a European seminar with the guy that developed the um, Mauritius gel, like the hydrogel. Oh, the Martin gel. And, and by yeah, the way, the you can mention any nutrition product you want to on this. I know Stephanie is sponsored by Cliff, but this podcast is not sponsored by anybody. So you can do whatever you want. Even if it was, I'd still yeah, (laughs) it's good. (laughs) Whatever. All right, so keep going. Yeah, so he's at this European conference, and he's like, "I would never design it for the way it was used. Matter of fact, I wish I was never involved because they put it specifically in an elite athletic environment for these guys that were genetically talented to try to run a marathon under two hours." And they aren't out there hitting it hard like someone who's running a four-hour marathon. So although they're going fast, their intestinal integrity isn't as compromised as someone who's out there for longer than two hours. So the whole concept is let's try to get enough fuel in them to support them going fast for two hours or less. But then it all got pulled over, as media and stuff does, into the general pop. And it's not designed for them. And people are having some success and other people are not. But they're pushing the whole, it came from this, you know, sub two hour project. And there's a lot of science behind it. And the guy's like, not science for general pop. It's science for these guys who are running sub two hour. And so when you start looking and I get all these questions, like it's still a concentrated carbohydrate that's going into the gut. That's going to push the pressure up in the small intestines. And it's going to cause this influx of water to come in. When you're looking at the super starches and you're looking at the new um, uh, rendition of the super starch, right? And you look at some of the research, it still is a maltodextrin or glucose polymer that invokes the same issues because the body doesn't recognize it as just being a glucose molecule or a fructose molecule. It's like, what is this thing? I don't know. Let's put water in to decrease the pressure and then we'll figure out what to do with it. (laughs) So there's a lot of marketing hype around it all. And it's really frustrating because everyone's like, what about this new product? I'm like, it's the same shit in a different can. <laughs> well, the, the, the nutrition, we could rant on the nutrition space for forever. Forever. It, yeah. it is completely suspect to this logical fallacy of the appeal to authority where mm-hmm. they bring on the elite athletes and some of them, it's authentic. Some of them use the product and they find some sort of benefit from it. And they're a great athlete anyway. And I'm not discounting that authenticity. But the point that you're trying to make that I think is really poignant, Stacey, is that there are only so many elite athletes that you can sell a dollar gel to. You have to sell it to the general public. And is that an appropriate nutrition product for a four-hour marathoner or a five-hour marathoner, or a 12-hour Ironman athlete, or something like that, just because mm-hmm. it's Elliot Kipchoge's product of choice, and it, you know, it might work for him. He broke two-hour marathon. There's nothing, you know, nobody's going to be able to knock that. But is it yeah. actually translatable to the general public? No. And the other thing that people don't realize is 
and this is from behind the scenes, I'm sure you've worked with that top end, right, that are sponsored by something, and they'll gap their bottles with something else, or they'll use a different product, but people don't know that. Or if they're on a team and they're sponsored by something, this is from the cycling set. A lot of the pro athletes just use what they've been given, and they don't know how much better they would feel if they didn't use it. Yeah. They complain about not feeling well. Um, so there is that misstep. Just because you're an elite athlete and you might be perceived of using something doesn't mean it's even good for the elite athlete. So, again, it's, I always say, marketing from science, which is so unfortunate. Yeah, it really is. Because then people are like, I, had, I was so dialed in for this race. I thought, you know, my training metrics are great, but then I had the porta potty stops or mm-hmm. I got cramping or I had GI distress. And it's like, well, did you really dial in your nutrition and try it out? Oh, no, I just figured I'd do what so-and-so told me to do. Or I did this on a shorter training session, right? So they're not really putting the thought process in it because they're overwhelmed with the FOMO around using a certain product. I've, I've, Stacy, you probably don't have the scope of this, but I've probably had seven or eight nutrition focused podcasts and they all consistently come back to try your nutrition and training to whatever extent you can replicate the race conditions, however close you can get to those race conditions, try your training, try your nutrition strategy out in training, do it relentlessly in training that's the key to everything unfolding. It's not a magic product. It's not a magic ratio of things. It's not a magic super starch, you know, carbohydrate or anything like that. It's literally trying the things out, figuring out what works for you in the confines of human physiology. Let's put that caveat in there. In the confines of human physiology, but then trying it time and time and time and time again and not letting it till race day to be like, oh, well, I don't, I don't know what it's like to take the vanilla gel after seven hours of running. Like that's a gamble that nobody wants to take. Yeah. Who knows? And that way, when you go into race day too, there's the confidence of like, I've done this a hundred times. I know it works. And you take that guesswork out. (laughs) Yeah. So I've been in the, um, as having a, a, a trade product in some of these expos and especially at Ironman and Kona, people will come up and be like, Oh, this will work in the week. Great. And they'll use it like the next day in the race. I'm like, well, I don't want to sell it to you. <laughs> We're not going to sell you that product. You can't just change it on the day. But dealers so like, oh, it's the best of the best that's going at the moment. I'm going to use it because tomorrow is worlds. And there's so many people who think that way. It's like, no, it's the X factor. Like it might work for your friend who's used it and told you to come over and try it. But that doesn't mean that it's going to work for you. So, yes, as you're saying. Try it in training as much as you can so that it's not uh, an X factor on race day. And elite athletes and age group athletes are alike are subject to that error. And you know, know that, Stacey, because you've seen it. And I've I seen know. it as well where it's like, really? Like we went, we've gone through this for months <laughs> and you decide to change it at the 11th hour? Like what were you thinking? Mm, I know. I had the luxury of having a, a professional that I really respect and I really want to do well. And there's been a lot of GI distress in the history. And finally, they were here. And I was like, put that shit away. We're going to do what I want you to do and let's see how much better it goes. And over the course of like three or four weeks, changed it all, didn't have any kind of issues. And I was like, see, 
Don't default on race day. Put those gels in my house and do not take them with you to race day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like being the mom. No, 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 no. <laughs> Maybe that's what we could take away from this. Plan your race day nutrition out as if your mom is watching you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And don't try to hide the chocolate because that's not going to work. There you go. <laughs> All right. We're going to leave it at that. Stacy, Steph, I appreciate both cool. of y'all's time. Yeah. Thank you. This yeah. is fun it's as fun always. Fun to chat. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun okay. to catch up, Stace. We, we need to do this again and then we can really go on some rants now that the audience will be used to and just totally go off the rails and throw F-bombs left and right and <laughs> it'll be a total hoot. You can put oh, your daughter great. away like early and like put the earmuffs on her and things like that and we'll just... That's right. I've been notoriously around her going, oh, Trump's such a fuckwit. <laughs> so she'll be like to my husband, mommy said that, that Trump was a fuckwit. And he's like, what? I'm leaving this in, by the way. I'm not cutting that part out. Um, before okay. we go, Stacy, where can people find more about you and the work that you're doing and get a kick-ass women are not small men t-shirt? T-shirt. So um, I do have a website now, uh, com. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook the same. And then if you want to follow research perspective, you can go to my university page, which is at Waikato, um, which is the University of Waikato in New Zealand. Uh, yeah. So, or you could do what my kid does. Siri, find me, Dr. Stacy Sims. And then it comes up with all the things. That's so cool. <laughs> all right, Stacey, appreciate everything you you do. And I, I appreciate all the counsel that you've given me over the years. I don't think I've ever yeah, said that uh, publicly. And I know, I know you know that, but you've been a big influence on my coaching career. And, uh, uh, and certainly a, a, a part of like who I am today is, yeah. is due to that Thanks, counsel. Man. So, th- so You're thank welcome. you. And I'm glad that People yeah. are taking the word. So All right. Keep doing what you're doing. I know. It's great. Finally. Uh. <laughs> All right. And there we have it. Thanks to Stacy and thanks to Steph for that podcast. I could not obviously have done it alone. Uh, Stephanie, thank you very much for providing your expertise in this podcast. Thank you to the listeners. If you have not already had a chance, skip on over to iTunes and subscribe to this podcast. That is the best way to ensure that all of this content gets fed into your podcasting feed, regardless of how you absorb that content. In addition to that, if you've not had the chance to give this podcast a rating or a review on iTunes, go on and do so. As we mentioned during the podcast, there are no sponsors on this podcast, so we can talk about any nutrition products that we want to, good, bad, or indifferent. So thank you guys for listening. Until next time, we will see everybody out on the trails. Thank you.